This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. Uh, tonight I'm joined by a new co-host. I'm really excited about this one. Uh, we are joined by uh, Joris Lachen. Joris, how are you? I'm really well. Very excited about tonight. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, I think probably most people watching this, if they're familiar with you, it's probably from your Instagram account, isn't it? Yes, Instagram or TikTok, but more likely Instagram recently, yes. Um, so I'm a trainer on anti-racism, bias and privilege, and my content on social media um, uses that, that body of knowledge and my lived experience to focus on the marginalized experience, uh, whichever they might be, whether they are mine or that of other people. And so I do social commentary from that perspective of the marginalized experience. And I try to bring a decolonial perspective to um, the world that is uh, around us. Super interesting. I'm showing my age by saying Instagram, not TikTok, of course, you know. Navarro is on TikTok. I'm not very good on it. Uh, and if you don't already, please follow, uh, follow Joris on Instagram. Superb account. I always learn a lot whenever he posts. First story. The 2024 US presidential election is on the horizon. And before that takes place, the Republican Party must choose its candidate to take on President Joe Biden this November. The first primary to make that choice took place last night in Iowa. And as was widely expected, former President Donald Trump was triumphant. And he didn't win by a narrow margin either, but decisively. He took 51% of the vote, over half the largest margin of victory in Iowa in Republican caucus history. By the way, the previous record was 41%, so he smashed that. Ron DeSantis came a distant second with Nikki Haley close behind. Vivek Ramaswamy trailed far below in fourth place. This was Trump after that victory. To all of the people standing behind me and all of the people in this room and so many great politicians and great dignitaries and friends, I just want to thank you all. This is a very special night. And this is the first because the big night is going to be in November when we take back our country and truly we do make our country great again. Thank you very much, everybody. Great honor. Thank you very much. Thank you. A rare understatement there from uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis spoke to his supporters after securing his second place in the race. We love you too. They threw everything but the kitchen sink at us. They spent almost $50 million attacking us. No one's faced that much all the way just through Iowa. They, the media was against us. They were writing our obituary months ago. They even called the election before people even got a chance to vote. But they were just so excited about the fact that they were predicting uh, that we wouldn't be able uh, to get our ticket punched here out of Iowa. But I can tell you, because of your support, in spite of all of that that they threw at us, everyone against us, we've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. 
unclear what that means, ticket punch, given Trump beat him by more than 30%. Anyway, uh, Trump and DeSantis will now head to the next primary in New Hampshire. Joining them will be former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, who said this following last night's events. I can safely say tonight, Iowa made this Republican primary a two-person race. Now, it's not entirely clear which two people Haley is talking about, given she came third. She probably does mean a two-horse race between herself and Donald Trump, given that comparatively moderate New Hampshire is likely to offer more favorable terrain for her. Polling, I think, today shows them neck and neck. One person not going on to the next primary is billionaire Vivek Ramaswamy. After his, after his disappointing results, he said this. As of this moment, we are going to suspend this presidential campaign. And this is going to have to be, there is no path for me to be the next president absent things that we don't want to see happen in this country. And I think that I am very worried for our country. I think we are skating on thin ice as a nation. We have done everything in our part to make and done, every one of us in this room has done our part to save this country. And I am so proud of every one of you who have lifted us up, but we're a campaign founded on the truth. And so that's why we've made that decision today. And I'm also making the decision that this has to be an America first candidate in that White House. As I've said since the beginning, there are two America first candidates in this race. And earlier tonight, I called Donald Trump to tell him that I Congratulate him on his victory. And now going forward, he will have my full endorsement for the presidency. And I think we're going to do the right thing for this country. And the Iowa caucus is not necessarily the best predictor of who will ultimately become the Republican presidential candidate, however. Iowa tends to vote more conservatively than many other Republican states. Turnout was low. Uh, the caucus mechanism also requires people to queue in the cold for hours before voting in the evening, meaning that they cast their ballot. Um, those who are the most hardcore voters tend to be turning up, uh, which is particularly an issue in Iowa right now because the weather was appalling. Uh, temperatures in Iowa last night fell to minus 30 degrees C and with wind chill felt like minus 40. Remarkable that anybody turned out, frankly. Uh, but perhaps most indicative of future success is electoral bang for buck. For Trump, the votes came cheap, relatively speaking, at just $340 each, meaning he only spent around $13 million in Iowa. By contrast, DeSantis and Haley each spent around $1,700 per vote, with total budgets in the state around $27 million, more than double Trump's. So, DeSantis' point about them throwing $50 million at him doesn't really make much sense, but then not much of what he says does. Uh, despite mounting lawsuits and several state bans on Trump appearing on ballots, the former president's support is only growing. In fact, those issues seem only to have helped him in Iowa, a state, remember, that he didn't win in the 2016 primary. Of course, he went on to win the presidency that year. His lead in Iowa climbed by nine points in the period from May last year, and pre-election polling of Iowan Republicans showed that only three in ten Republicans believed Biden was legitimately elected.
Two-thirds said that even if Trump was convicted, he would still be fit to be president. Now, the result in Iowa is also replicated in Republican primary polling. Trump, as you can see here in purple, looks set to take 63% of the primary votes. Haley and DeSantis are neck and neck, but they are miles off the pace. So, at present, Trump looks set to be the Republican candidate. And one factor playing in his favor is his powerful connection with his base. This was him getting out the votes the day before the Iowa caucus. So if you want to save America from crooked Joe Biden, you must go caucus tomorrow. First step. Look at the first step. We're going to do it. We're going to do it big. You got to get out. You can't sit home. If you're sick as a dog, you say, darling, I've got to make it. Even if you vote and then pass away, it's worth it. <laughs> if you're sick, if you're just so sick, you can't. Darling, I don't think. Get up. Get up. You get up. You vote. Yes, darling. Ultimately, we know who calls the shots, right? <laughs> I feel like I've taken drugs sometimes watching, or maybe I've had a knock to the head watching US politics, just with you know Donald Trump saying, even if you're about to die, go out and vote for me at minus 30 degrees C. Uh, defies belief, but it's now become normal, hasn't it? Uh, earlier today, I spoke to a political commentator and presenter with the Majority Report, Matt Binder, about Trump's victory results in Iowa. Trump probably performed exactly where uh, at least people who were sort of paying attention to just how much of a stranglehold Trump still holds over the GOP. Uh, I think he performed like what they expected. Uh, could he have done better? I mean, I wouldn't have been surprised to see a complete blowout. Uh, but I think in terms of realistically, with obviously there are going to be at least some people who attend these caucuses who maybe don't like him uh, and prefer someone else, whether it's because of the Trump baggage or, and that would be the DeSantis pick, if that's your issue with Trump, or you just don't like certain aspects of who Trump is, uh, you know, his convictions. Um, that's where you would probably be more of a, a Nikki Haley person. Um, you know, with uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, for example, I never quite got the opening for him. He basically uh, has the same sort of, uh, you know, culture war issues that Trump talks about, but I guess he's younger. But, um, you know, his issue of his his background, his Indian background was always going to be uh, a major problem for him in a uh, GOP primary. So, uh, you know, he, he was always going to fall wayside there. And could this be the high point for Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis? In so much as you say, you know, it could have been a blowout, uh, you know, were there perhaps concerns about Trump going into this? And now obviously they've been blasted away and actually in New Hampshire and from there on we might see even bigger wins um, in various primaries around the country. Both uh, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are holding out for, um, you know, some sort of uh, big save from the voters of New Hampshire. Uh, you know, these first two primary states usually are very interesting because their voters, at least their primary voters, uh, sometimes go with a, a complete wild card. We've seen this in Democratic and Republican primaries previously over the years. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen this time around. Trump probably will handily win New Hampshire. Uh, the question, I guess, would be uh, who comes in second again, Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. But you know, at this point, this this fight over who's going to get second place seems completely pointless because Trump again is just winning by such large margins in in the polls. Uh, in the Iowa caucus, he made history last night. 
there's never been a blowout that large in terms of like uh, uh, the disparity between uh, where the first place and second place came in. Uh, Trump got 30 points more than Ron DeSantis. I believe the previous uh, the previous record was like uh, less than 13 points. So Trump has completely, you know, uh, destroyed that record. I just don't see any room for Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis unless they're hoping for some sort of Hail Mary from the universe and something happens to Trump. And then whoever's in second place would, I guess, uh, be able to make that argument that they could uh, take over. And of Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, who had the worst night? You know, Nikki Haley came in third, but not by much. I would say Ron DeSantis had the worst night simply because he was supposed to be the golden boy. He was supposed to be the guy who came along and was the perfect Trump replacement. He has none of the Trump baggage. He's seen as a serious politician, a serious player. He's the governor of Florida. Uh, Trump had given him his blessings previously by endorsing him for governor. Uh, in the years leading up to this primary, uh, you know, election, um, like the sort of the whole primary campaign and the years leading up to that, Ron DeSantis was being touted as the next, you know, GOP, you know, the face of the GOP. Uh, he was getting all the headlines in conservative, in, in conservative media in such a positive way, too. They really were uh, building him up to be the guy. And all it took was for Trump to say, no, I'm, I'm running again. And they pushed him aside real quick. And he, made, he tried to make the case, but his campaign at every single uh, step and turn, every facet of his campaign, you can argue, has been an, a, a, an absolute failure. So he's not even able to argue from that standpoint that, you know, you might prefer Trump, but I have the better campaign. Uh, it's just, that's just false too. And what I'm really interested in personally is the sort of media that Trump is relying on right now, because of course he's famously not using Twitter. Um, he's not held in the kind of esteem that one might previously have thought at, say, Fox News. You know, with the leaked emails concerning what various people thought of him. So he's not on social media like other candidates. He's clearly been um, the subject of a great deal of criticism from liberal media, and he's not, you know, necessarily liked by Fox either. What tools, what platforms, what medium are his campaign using to get people out in these numbers? Right. So for Trump, he, I, you know, I think people underestimate how, uh, you know, he's able to get his message out there via Truth Social. Like Truth Social, the platform as like a social media platform is pretty much dead. I mean, there's, there's, if you're hoping, if you're an investor in Truth Social, hoping it becomes a, a major tech company or something like that, uh, you're, you're in for a, uh, a crude awakening sometime in the near future, I'm sure. But as a, you know, as a press release distribution platform for Trump and only Trump, it has been fantastic for him. He's able to basically uh, share his thoughts and opinions, uh, zero filter zero sort of policies and rules to follow that other platforms would put on him. And he's able to do it on even the most minute of topics. He could basically mouth off on anything he wants and the press and all the other social media platforms cover it as if it's like some grand press release from like a very serious individual putting out like, like a, 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 a like a PR shopped news item. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable how he's able to do that on a platform that serves no other purpose than to be there for him. 
Uh, and I think that has been a major factor because, you know, people just screenshot those posts that he puts out there. Uh, they're sometimes crazy, ridiculous, sometimes funny, sometimes really worrisome. And, and if you're, you know, uh, if you're not a Trump fan uh, and you see what he's able to, to, you know, the amount of people he's able to reach using this platform that no one's on. But they're able to get his words on that platform to every other platform and to mainstream news outlets on pretty much anything he mouths off on. So I think he's sort of done a good job of creating this really this this sort of media center all around himself that he can create and control and everyone just covers. And how does that work in a in a general? So obviously in a Republican primary, that's that's pretty good. But the story of US elections really since 2008, even further back fundamentally is about innovation in, in, in media. So with Obama, in a way, you see, you know, new use of Facebook. Uh, with Howard Dean in the early noughties, you see um, crowdfunding for the first time, serious use of websites. And I guess the question is, is the big innovation in the general, should Trump be the Republican candidate? Is it going to be truth social? And is that really good enough to take on uh, the power, the might of East Coast broadcast media some of the big newspapers in the United States, like the New York Times, a massive media organization. Uh, or will there have to be other kinds of innovation for, for Trump to stand a chance? I'm thinking Telegram, WhatsApp. In terms of innovations by Trump supporters, is there anything new? If you've been watching those Republican debates, and I, I'm sure if you look at the ratings, they've petered off as, as they've gone on, um, you, you would notice that like, even though he wasn't there, it was quite obvious that Trump was like hanging over like his his uh his ghost the specter was haunting the Republican primaries and that was Trump. Um you know this uh this idea that you would have these primary debates and he wouldn't be there the front runner wouldn't be there became sort of like so obviously a new like the news story because the debates weren't any good or relevant without him there for these primary candidates to sort of get at. And that's what he was sort of smart. He's the former president. He has, he's the front runner by far. The only thing he had to gain, well, he had nothing to gain, I should say, from attending these primary debates. He only had something to lose. He wasn't getting any more approval rating from the Republicans. It's already as high, it's already sky high. It's high as it could possibly be. So if one of these candidates got something off on him, um, you know, if they one up to him in a topic or something, he only had something to lose. So he was smart by playing that game. And he still, by just doing these rallies, would get these the mainstream media covering him. Like as we saw back in 2016 when he won and in 2020, uh, although 2020 was obviously a much different race due to the uh, COVID pandemic. But we saw that Trump is a guy that the mainstream media is willing to give attention to no matter what but without properly covering him in return. Like he is a ratings machine because he's so, you know, he's so off the wall and ridiculous in, you know, to, to like sort of the average voter, someone who's not paying fully attention to politics, you know, by this time, if you're watching politics, his shtick is old and you realize what dangerous rhetoric it is that he's saying, but you know, most Americans, most people in general just don't pay attention to politics in that way. So, you know, when he says something off the wall to most people, it will get the headlines in the media. And that's what he re he's been relying on for the past, what, eight years now. He gets coverage no matter what he does. And it's never fair coverage either because he can say something like, I'll be a dictator. And the media will cover it as like, oh, that silly Donald Trump without getting across 
to the you know to the to the broader public that no this guy is actually this is who he is he's not just like saying something as like you know you're you're this this loony uh Donald Trump that you might know from the apprentice uh he, this is this is what we've seen he's capable of doing uh you know just look at things like what he was able to uh, get out of his followers the fervor he caused on January 6 2021 um, so, you know, Trump will continue to play the media and the media will continue to fall for it and they'll continue to cover him. And in return, uh, we won't even get good coverage. And final question, Matt, what, what next? Um, obviously, we've got New Hampshire and it looks like Trump will will win the nomination. But in terms of these legal cases now um, and him being kept off the ballot in places like Colorado and whatnot, firstly, what happens with those? Secondly, if he is on the ballot regardless, do you think the Democrats would still uh, stand Joe Biden? Any sort of hope that the Democrats are going to put something, someone out there other than Joe Biden is just uh, wishful thinking. It's not going to happen. I, I can't think of uh, a modern uh, presidential election where the party removed uh, you know, the sitting president, the incumbent, and ran with someone else. It would be, um, you know, I think it would be, you know, for all of Biden's uh, failings, I think it would be bad for them to do it that way as well, uh, simply because the vast majority of, you know, faithful, uh, democratic, you know, the democratic base, the ones that they can rely on, the ones that they know will be there would probably be upset with, you know, how they, that, that would, would go with, uh, you know, them just removing Biden and going with someone else. And then they'd have to worry on winning those people over, uh, and they have enough to worry about with Biden. So they won't be going with that. Now with Trump, I think you know the Supreme Court's going to come in and save him on any of those, um, any of those states that removed him from the ballot. Uh, a number of those states too were just for the the, the uh, you know the courts in those states basically just had ruled on Trump being off of the primary ballot, and so the general election ballot was going to be a whole other case. But by the time that comes around, the Supreme Court will have made their ruling, and you know we have a conservative Supreme Court now, thanks to Donald Trump. And uh, they're certainly going to rule in his favor. Uh, you know, I think we're going to see a Trump versus Biden general election general election matchup. Excuse me, in November 2024, and none of Donald Trump's you know convictions or anything like that are going to play a role. Other than you know, will it play a role in the mind of each particular voter when they go to cast their vote? Um, there'll be people who may not vote for Trump because of it. There'll be people who may vote for Trump because of that. Um, we'll just have to see. I think it's going to be, um, as of right now, I think if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to be either Trump or Biden in terms of who's sitting prettier, I would say, unfortunately, Trump's looking better right now in terms of, you know, how they're doing in the polls and how, you know, the, the American voting public is looking at them. I, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy to see, but that's where we are. And unfortunately for uh, the Democrats, They've got no one to thank, uh, you know, to blame, I should say, but themselves and Joe Biden's position on a number of issues that have alienated the Democratic base in areas that he needs to win, like Michigan. Thanks to uh, Matt Abinda for joining us. Uh, really striking how quickly we move from Trump has no chance, it's not possible, he's going to jail to, I mean, he's, he's almost certainly going to win the nomination and he looks like the favorite to be the next president. Long way to go, uh, but it is really extraordinary. Next story. Now, I've always suspected the people running Britain's privately operated train companies were laughing at us. 
With a first-class ticket on the privatization gravy train, it's not difficult to imagine. They get subsidies while running a business. Uh, the Tory government gives money and political backing when workers go on strike. And during COVID, it's a political priority that they don't lose any money. Uh, they even still get to pay shareholders dividends too. It really is a very sweet deal for private rail operators while the public and the taxpayer suffer. But now we literally know they are laughing and making jokes about, quote, free money from the taxpayer. How do we know that? Well, because of an extraordinary scoop by my colleague here at Navarra Media, Polly Smythe. She authored this brilliant exclusive, which you can now read over at navarramedia.com, the link to which is in the description box below. The title is Free Money, Executives at Failing Train Company Joke About Making Money at the taxpayer's expense. And now the company in question is Avanti West Coast, who have become a byword for poor performance and lateness. Avanti West Coast is a joint venture between UK-based first group and Italian train operator Trenitalia, which ironically is publicly owned. In 2022, they dramatically reduced their timetable, citing staff shortages as the reason for widespread disruption. However, unions rejected that claim, instead arguing Avanti had long been operating by expecting staff to work on their rest days. In October that year, the Department of Transport handed Avanti West Coast a bonus payout of £4.1 million, and that was despite the fact that the operator was, at that point, Britain's worst for punctuality, with only 60.1% of stops by Avanti trains arriving and departing on their scheduled time. So how do we know they find all this rather funny? Well, as I've said, that scoop was broken by Polly, and she managed to get certain slides for a demonstration that was intended for company management. Her article details what it said. The slides mockingly described how Avanti West Coast is given performance-based bonuses by the Treasury for achieving a less-than-perfect service. A slide entitled, Roll Up, Roll Up, Get Your Free Money Here, sets out how the Treasury, via the Department of Transport, expects Avanti to, quote, provide resources to deliver high-quality levels of customer service. In return, the Treasury will support the company to deliver new assets, customer service improvement projects and initiatives, as well as defined maintenance and third-party supplier contracts. The slide then reads, then they'll pay for it, nearly all of it. But that's not the end of the matter. By they, of course, they mean... The taxpayer. Uh, whereas previously train operating companies were fined for their failure to comply with standards, they will now be rewarded for meeting their targets. Uh, the slides tell how Avanti gets performance-related bonuses for a service that the Treasury has already paid it to provide, even if it scores 7 out of 10 for compliance. You gave a very average service, maybe even substandard. Here, have a bonus. Uh, that's right, a company is paid to do something and then gets paid again for doing it. How is that a bonus? It's like being late to work three days a week and, and still getting a bonus for punctuality. In reality, your basic pay is higher. You're not getting anything related to your performance. Now, specifically with regards to those claims in that article, here are the slides in question. As you can see, all managers call. There's the date. Roll up, roll up, get your free money. This is a private enterprise talking about taxpayer funds. It reads like something a dodgy lawyer 
would be saying in a no-win, no-fee TV advert. But instead, these are the people destroying our country's infrastructure while we foot the bill. Uh, speaking to Navarra Media, RMT General Secretary Mick Lynch said this, Avanti is one of the worst rail companies in terms of performance and how it treats rail staff. For senior management to produce a PowerPoint slide bragging about the government paying them public money is a disgrace. The government has the mandate over Avanti and should never have given them a long-term nine-year contract award. The fact that the company feels emboldened to boast that they get, quote, free money is down to the ridiculous system of rail ownership in this country. Ultimately, profit-driven companies who receive huge public subsidies have failed to deliver for railway workers and passengers alike. And that's why we need public ownership of the entire network. This is an absolutely extraordinary story. You know, how many times we heard over the last year, sorry, we've got to close ticket offices. There's no money. Sorry. Uh, the number of people taking trains post-COVID is not the same as it was before. You have the private executives of these companies saying, there's free money, laughing. They're in hysterics with their exclamation marks. I, I suspect there's even some emojis somewhere else, though we haven't got any evidence of that. Joris, uh, you're originally from France, but now live in the UK. How do the two rail systems compare? Well, so the French rail system, uh, SSCF, is still publicly owned, not for lack of trying uh, the successive governments, both left-wing and right-wing uh, have tried to privatize it for the past decades. Um, they have somewhat failed, um, but they still managed to uh, split uh, the, the SNCF between the network and the infrastructure and the services, which is equivalent to what's happened in the UK. Now it makes even less sense in the context of France because both those and those companies are publicly owned, but it just shows that even though... Um, the public owns the, the railway system in France, the goal is still um, neoliberal and capitalist because the goal is not to provide a service, but simply, well, in the case of the UK, to make profit for private um, direct in private directions and in France to manage the, the, the debt because, of course, the railway system does not make money and it cannot make money um, because the benefits um, are not, you cannot make money through selling tickets that will never cover the cost of infrastructure and development. With the economic benefits, they're always um, through uh, benefits to the, to the land, to the communities and to the economic uh, growth that is that results in, in that and that is never going to be captured by the the railway system and network so we see here that the goal is even though france has a publicly owned railway system they have a lot in common in the sense that they are not serving uh, the people they are not for the people and ironically from a neoliberal perspective the UK railway network is working exactly as intended because it funnels money into the uh, shareholders and, 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 and the managers. So it does what it's supposed to do. Whereas the French system, even though the service is much better, the infrastructure is considerably better, not perfect, but much better. But the French system, considering that it's in a huge debt that the state constantly has to um, cover, that is considered as a failure from a capitalistic and neoliberal perspective, even though it works better in many ways. So we see here the um, the irony of, of the situation when we compare those two.
And how do people in France talk about Britain's service? Because, I mean, it must be a strange sell when you've got French governments of a, a centre-right or centre-left complexion saying that, you know, we want to fragment the system, um, we want to move away from what we have at the moment. Surely sensible people in France who, who aren't even necessarily particularly progressive or left-wing would say, well, we've seen what fragmentation and privatisation does. It's Britain. It's a catastrophe. Why would we do that? Like, you have an example of failure right on your doorstep. Is that part of the, the conversation with regards to public transport in France, just how bad it is in Britain compared to what they have across the channel? Probably. And I would say that this is probably the main reason why the consecutive governments did not succeed in privatizing the railway system in France. It's because thanks to the British failure, there was the obvious example right across the channel of what happens. But unfortunately, because there was not such a spectacular failure for um, airlines, for instance, um, then that means that the, the French national um, flat carrier was privatized and many other uh, companies, national companies and national pride companies um, were privatized. The exception being SNCF, so the railway network. And I do think that we owe a lot to, to the Brits, to your failure. I like that idea that people in France still get to enjoy great high-speed trains, affordable, reliable, uh, because of the major government and the clusterfuck that we had around uh, rail privatization in this country. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad somebody's learning from those failures, if it's not our politicians here in the UK. Next story. Tensions in the Middle East continue to escalate. Iran has fired rockets at sites in Iraqi Kurdistan, and the Iranian Revolutionary Guards released this footage of several ballistic missiles being fired on Monday night. Those missiles hit a residential suburb of Erbil, a city in the semi-autonomous Kurdistan region of Iraq. The Revolutionary Guards say they destroyed, quote, one of the main headquarters of Israel's spy agency Mossad in Iraq's Kurdistan region. The attack, they say, was in response to, quote, the recent evil acts of the Zionist regime in martyring Revolutionary Guards and resistance commanders. That's a reference to the killing of several revolutionary guards reportedly by Israel in Syria in recent weeks. But the Kurdistan region Security Council quickly rejected Iran's claims, calling it, quote, an unfounded pretext. Israel has not commented on the attack. The strike in Erbil uh, killed four civilians, including an 11-month-old baby. Also killed was Peshwar Desai, a multi-millionaire real estate developer in the region. And a further six civilians were injured. The missiles in Erbil also struck very close to the US consulate. And three armed drones were later shot down over Erbil Airport. Uh, the US military has forces stationed there, part of an international coalition fighting ISIS. In response to the attack, US State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller said this, We strongly condemn Iran's attacks in Erbil and offer condolences to the families of the victims. We oppose Iran's reckless missile strikes and support the governments of Iraq and the Kurdistan regional government's efforts to meet the aspirations of the Iraqi people. Interesting that they support the Iraqi government, given the same Iraqi government asked the US to withdraw from their country a few years ago. Uh, but there we are. 
Iran has tried to draw a connection between the Erbil attack and Israel's war against Gaza, though the veracity of those claims has no evidence. Also today, the US announced that it has seized a cache of Iranian weapons bound for Yemen's Houthi militias. The operation was carried out by Navy SEALs last Thursday and involved the nighttime boarding of a boat off the Somali coast. The US Central Command reports that they seized propulsion, guidance, and warheads for medium-range ballistic missiles and anti-ship cruise missiles. The US operation was not without cost, possibly in lives, and the US has now confirmed that two Navy SEALs were lost during the mission. According to a Pentagon official, one fell into the sea while boarding the boats, and the second dived in after him. The US Navy is continuing to search for both individuals. If they're not found, they will be the first known US service personnel to have died in the current operation to stop the Houthis from blocking shipping traffic through the Red Sea. The Houthis say they will continue to attack ships until Israel withdraws from Gaza, where more than 23,000 people have been killed since October. On Tuesday, Houthis struck yet another vessel in the Red Sea, hitting a Greek-owned cargo ship as it passed the Yemeni coast. There's been one more interaction between the US and Iran in recent days. Last week, Iran seized a ship from the US. In an operation involving the country's Revolutionary Guard, Iran took back a tanker carrying Iraqi crude oil to Turkey after it was seized by the US last year. The action took place in the Gulf of Oman. The US took the ship last year after it was found to be carrying Iranian oil in violation of sanctions against the country. Now, it increasingly feels like a regional war is highly possible, but we aren't really thinking about the costs of that here at home. This is all a lot to take in, I know, and all too rarely the media actually tell you what's going on. So let me just identify some of the facts. We've had more than 35 attacks in the Red Sea by Houthis. We've had more than 100 attacks by uh, Iranian-backed Iraqi militias against US service personnel in both Iraq and Syria. And now we have the Iranians uh, striking targets in Iraq and seizing vessels in the Straits of Hormuz. This is, if not a regional war, most certainly a region at war. But what does this mean for you? Or what does it mean for me? What does it mean for those of us here in the West? Well, around 30% plus of globally traded oil passes through the Red Sea and the Strait of Hormuz. If those are, for whatever reason, closed down, we will see a massive increase in energy prices. And of course, it's not just oil that passes through this part of the world. The Red Sea and the Suez Canal is a massive choke point with regards to the flow of goods coming both in and out of Europe. We will see significant inflation if this continues to escalate. And I don't think those costs are being made clear to electorates across Europe and the United States, but most certainly in this country. Can Joe Biden can Rishi Sunak politically survive with a second dose of relatively high inflation? I suspect not. Next story. Yesterday, Parliament debated events in the Middle East, specifically Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea and Israel's war in Gaza. Here's Labour MP for Coventry South, Zara Sultana. 
past mistakes in the Middle East should have taught this House that military intervention starting out as limited can quickly escalate, risking a sequence of events far larger and more terrible and risk even dragging us into war. It is for this reason, according to reports in The Times, that Foreign Office officials were, and I quote, incredibly nervous about last week's military assault in Yemen. Driving the region's instability is Israel's horrifying assault on Gaza, which has now lasted more than 100 days. So rather than giving Israel the green light to continue its brutal bombardment of Gaza and risking a wider conflict, will the Prime Minister Prime Minister seek to de-escalate the situation and call for an immediate ceasefire. Prime Minister. Uh, perhaps the Honourable Lady would, would do well to call on Hamas and the Houthis to de-escalate the situation. Andrew Percy. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. Too many people give a free pass to the terrorists who, uh, uh, who um, uh, perpetrated the worst murder of Jews. And we've just seen an example of that, just as we saw examples of that on our streets uh, this weekend, where people screamed, Yemen, Yemen, turn another ship around. Completely unacceptable. Intervention starting out as limited can quickly escalate. That's all Zahra Sultana says, and that's obviously true. Think World War I, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, all the consequences of removing Gaddafi in Libya. There's too many examples of precisely that. She then cites the Times newspaper of all places, highlighting that the Foreign Office or at least some people there, were concerned about how this course of action could have downsides. Now, that that's not much of a surprise. It's literally their job to consider all eventualities and contingencies. If they weren't doing that, we should be worried. Uh, she then calls for the government to push for a de-escalation from Israel in its war with Gaza. Rishi Sunak then says she should call on the Houthis and Hamas to de-escalate. Rishi, we, Britain, are allies with Israel. We sell them stuff. We work with the IDF. We aren't allies with the Houthis. These uh, dashing young men posting TikToks. We aren't on their side. What's our leverage in persuading them in the same way? Can you imagine? Houthi HQ. Sorry, lads, it's over. Zara Sultana has condemned us in Parliament. And meanwhile, we do actually have influence with Israel. But it's the claim of Andrew Percy that is particularly extraordinary here. In response to Zara Sultana citing, as I've said already, the Times newspaper, he claims she's giving a free pass to terrorists. How? Where? She simply called for a thoughtful approach as a conflict can quickly escalate, repeating things that others in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office have said. She then calls on the government to de-escalate things in Gaza, which in a strange way is sort of meant to be the Tory policy anyway. They're not calling for a ceasefire, but they, they want things to de-escalate. They certainly don't want things to get any hotter. So how is Zara Sultana quoting the Times, agreeing with Foreign Office officials, and in a broad way repeating government policy, giving a free pass to Hamas? What an utterly stupid thing to say. Zara Sultana later replied with this point of order. 
In the previous statement, the member for Brigham Gould implied that I had just, and I quote, given a free pass to the terrorists who carried out the October the 7th attack. Mr Deputy Speaker, that claim is grotesquely untrue. My question to the Prime Minister in no way had that implication. I was calling for a de-escalation in the region and for an immediate ceasefire, and his accusation is absolutely untrue. In this House and elsewhere, I have repeatedly condemned the actions of Hamas and called for the release of all hostages. Moreover, the member's gross accusation is playing to a racist trope, implying that because I am a Muslim, I support Hamas. So with rising Islamophobia and racist tropes, asking British Muslims to prove their loyalty, can I ask you for guidance on how to get a full retraction and apology from the member for Brig and Ghoul? Further to that point of order, Andrew Percy. As loath as I am to engage in this silliness, let me be absolutely clear let me be absolutely clear to the Honourable Lady, not only did I not reference her, I have on numerous, if she would let me, if she'd listen to the response, on numerous occasions I have said too many people have failed to call out uh, what I think is unacceptable. I've said that before, I'm not going to stop saying that I think people have given a free pass on occasions um, to uh, behaviour and have not uh, dealt with this with a fair hand. That is an open point of debate. I have called people out on my own side for that. If she could sit here and listen to me, it has absolutely nothing to do with the um, thing. But I don't want to engage in this silliness. So I will say, I will say to the Honourable Lady, I have absolutely no intention of inferring at all that she is in any... Let me respond that she is in any way in support of any of that. I'm sure she isn't. I never said that. I would never say that. But I'm also, Mr Deputy Speaker, not going to not say what I think on issues in this House and call out what I think is on this issue. Too many people in this place giving a free pass to one side whilst not acknowledging the horrors that the other side suffered. I would never engage in this silliness. You, you started the silliness. I would never say that. You did say that. I wouldn't infer that. Mr. Percy, it wasn't an inference. You were literally jabbing your finger at her. You were pointing at her. That's not an the inference. There's no inference. You were pointing at her. Uh, Joris, this was an extraordinary interaction for so many reasons, wasn't it? Zara Sultana's biggest crime is to be a brown Muslim woman in circles of power and governance. And no matter what she does or say, she will always be asked to apologize for her existence in places where the system is not supposed to allow her to exist and to have any influence. So this is essentially what she's being asked to do, to apologize for existing, for being who she is. And it's interesting when you look at the Tory party that claims to be completely against identity politics. But here we see that a woman, a brown woman like Zara Sultana's identity is what they see first. And no matter what she does, there's nothing she can do right because her identity, her otherness will always be perceived by those people uh, as the thing that defines her and that she has to act uh, around. And, and so her proximity, her assumed proximity to, um, to, to Hamas or the Houthis here supersedes whatever she might have done or said. And they don't care what she said. Then they never cared what she said. Uh, she could have said and worded it differently a million different ways. The result would have still been the same because all they see and all they take into consideration is her identity. And that's the thing that they cannot stand and that they want her to apologize for constantly. How far does that go? Because of course, there are some Muslims on, on Tory benches. So would you uh, equally say that, look, 
unless you 100% get square behind everything that the government does, you really don't have a you don't really have the agency to to think independently when it comes to things like foreign policy, most certainly in the Middle East. Well, that shows the um, incredible, incredibly efficient uh, process of tokenizing as, that this government has been particularly really good at, because as long as you are you you toe the line of of the dominant group of of the hegemony, then your your identity is not only tolerated but uh, celebrated or, or pushed forward because you are actually acting against your community or, or your identity, and that they love that. This is no coincidence if there are so many people of color in this government. It's because they are the example of how um, identity is not actually um, that important in this. Uh, and even though those who claim that uh, they, they hate identity politics, their entire policies and their entire, the, the way that they perform power is uh, entirely built around that. We have one more story this evening, and it's a similar vein. Uh, it relates to immigration refugees. The Tory government's Rwanda bill is back in Parliament, with MPs today having the first of two days of debate. Uh, the bill is a response to the Supreme Court's ruling last year that said it was not legal to send asylum seekers to Rwanda, as it was not a safe country. Uh, presumably, Rishi Sunak will take a summer holiday there next year. It allows Parliament to simply declare Rwanda safe, bypassing any legal challenge and asserting the sovereignty of parliament. A number of amendments have been brought by right-wing Tory rebels tonight, all of which have failed. But what was interesting is that around 60 Tory rebels voted for them. The rebels want the bill to be far more punitive, arguing it doesn't go nearly far enough when it comes to breaking international law. Specifically, they say it should allow Britain to dismiss the European Convention on Human Rights when it comes to asylum policy, and that asylum seekers should have limited rights of appeal. Robert Jenrick is one of those rebels who tabled an amendment tonight. He resigned as immigration minister over what he saw as the weakness of the bill. Here's what he said in Parliament today. The current bill doesn't work. And the test of whether it works is not can we get a few symbolic flights off in the months ahead with a small number of illegal migrants on them. The test is can we create the kind of sustainable deterrent that we set out to achieve. The sustainable deterrent that my right honourable friend, the member for Whitham, set out to achieve when she secured this groundbreaking deal with Rwanda. The kind of deterrent that protects not just this country for generations to come from the scourge of illegal migration, but the whole continent of Europe. Because I can tell all honourable and right honourable members having spoken to almost every interior minister and immigration minister, not just in Europe, but in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Morocco, in Turkey. They all ask, when are you getting this policy up and running? Will it work? And they want it to work because they know if we can create a sustainable deterrent, we will stop people coming, we will secure Europe's borders, we will save lives. And in an age of mass migration, this is one of the most important challenges that we have to face. Everyone asks me, you spent 300 million quid on this thing and nobody's gone to Rwanda. I bet they do, and I bet you haven't got much of an answer. Uh, 
Uh, on the other side of the Tory spectrum, more liberal conservatives have said the bill already goes far enough in testing the limits of international law. And they have promised to reject any bill that breaks more of the UK's human rights commitments than the current version. So the Rwanda bill is breaking out the deep cracks in the Tory party as if they weren't bad enough. And that division is a massive headache for Rishi Sunak, threatening his leadership and making him appear weak. Earlier, two of his own officials, uh, deputy chairs, came out in support of the rebels. This was uh, one of them, a Tory deputy chair, Lee Anderson. This is him on Twitter. He's not telling us how to tie our shoelaces. He's saying instead, the Rwanda bill. I've signed the cash and generic amendments. I will vote for them. And this was another deputy chairman, Brendan Clark-Smith. When I was elected in 2019, I promised my constituents we would take back control. I want this legislation to be as strong as possible, and therefore I'll be supporting the generic cash amendments. These are arguments I have consistently made and will continue to make. So fascinating, they don't want to take back control of things like water, rail, and mail. Anyway, as Sunak made Anderson and Clark Smith deputy chairs to appease the Tory right, a move he may now be coming to regret, as both of them have resigned as party deputy chairs over the bill. And while he's no longer an MP, a disgraced former Prime Minister Boris Johnson remains influential among right-wing Tories. He said this about tonight's amendments. Governments around the world are now trying to imitate the UK-Rwanda policy for tackling illegal people trafficking. This bill must be as legally robust as possible, and the right course is to adopt the amendments. Again, unclear. Why would you want to imitate something which has cost £300 million with no actual outcomes? But these people do inhabit apparel reality, so it makes sense that he would say that. However, despite the events of today, the key moment for all of this is tomorrow. That's when there'll be a third reading of the Rwanda bill and the last chance that MPs will have to debate it before it goes to the House of Lords. Will all of these rebels vote for it or not so far? Their bark has been much worse than their bite. Juris, what do you make of the Rwanda policy, first of all? And then do you think it's going to get over this final hurdle tomorrow night? Well, earlier I was talking about the performance of power. And here, this is another great example of something that a policy that makes no sense from an economic perspective, from a security perspective, from a political perspective, because this is suicide, basically. It, there's no way that the British public sees that favorably when once they look at the, how much it costs and, and the entire infrastructure that is being built around this. So the only reason why the government is pushing so hard for this is to perform power and is, is to exert violence. And, and here we, we see that the remnants of empire, of a falling empire that is trying as hard as it can to still show that it has power by exerting violence. Violence on who? On, on black and brown bodies, on marginalized people who are in a position of being defenseless. And this is how um, empire tries to, um, to remind everyone of, of its power and it's losing power. And, and it, it's not lost on me as well, that this obsession with moving those, body, those bodies to Africa, to the colonized world. So this, this ability to shuffle bodies and, and colonized bodies around the world and to determine where they belong, where they have to go, how they are to be managed as assets, as nuisance, that is still 
the colonial thinking that is still the colonial empire that is still in action um, after decolonization those that the empires didn't quite know or it took them a while to find a way to still exert their power in the way that they knew how to do and this is an example of uh, a falling empire uh, who's suddenly found this new way or what seems to be a new way to exert its power and this is why they are throwing everything that they can into this, uh, as much money as possible, even though it makes no sense, even from their own perspective, from their own perspective where um, immigration is a danger, where asylum seekers are dangerous. Even from that perspective, it does not make sense to send them to Rwanda, other than the symbol of power and violence. Yeah, I think it's an effort to just humiliate. And I think you're so right to say that, look, this is also interesting in so much as people are being sent to Africa. You know, it's visibly cruel and it's clearly visibly channeling decades-old stuff. Fascinating for me, I must say, is I saw Nigel Farage uh, talking about undocumented migrants recently. And he said, well, you know, they do this. It's not good enough because actually, really, we all know what really matters is the legal migration. 1.3 million people net migration in two years. Of course, in a certain sense, he's right. Uh, 60,000 people entering, uh, I think, on small boats last year is nothing compared to 1.3 million people over two years, perfectly legally. Um, the government doesn't want to talk about that for a bunch of reasons. But this right-wing faction of the Tory party, you know, Rwanda could work, right? You could stop small boats tomorrow. They would talk about this instead. There will always be an enemy. There will always be a grievance. These people can't deliver rising living standards for people, so they have to have something else instead. We will be covering that more tomorrow night. Major moment for the government. Uh, of course, if that legislation doesn't get over that final hurdle, it makes a general election in the short term much more likely. I suspect uh, it will, but we'll see. It's not a done deal. Uh, Joris, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you, Aaron. It was really fun. And I have to say, uh, I'll repeat what I um, mentioned at the top of the show. Joris is on Instagram. Very much worth following. TikTok too. Uh, but I'm showing my age. I don't really use TikTok as much. Uh, thanks to all of you as well for tuning in. We'll be back tomorrow evening for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.